Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 84, and we are talking all about global CS and how the world and our own learning can be connected together. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Perez, and I'm a teacher that codes. And Kelly, we have a very special guest with us today. Would you like to introduce him? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm so super excited. He's probably embarrassed how excited I am. But we have Will Richardson, who, oh my goodness, he's just amazing. I've been following him since 2011, not as a stalker, but in conferences and keynotes, we saw you in Monterey. He is working and you're working with, sorry, trying to remember the global, say what you're working. Homer Tavangar. Homer Tavangar, yeah. And you are, guys are talking a lot of big questions and you are asking the questions that we and a lot of educators today are still asking. And we are just so excited. We're going to continue our talk about tech for good and building global connectedness with Will and hear his thoughts. So, Welcome, Will. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Well, we're going to get started in the same place we always do with the wins of the week. So something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom. And because it's kind of fun, we're going to make Will go first. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, Will, something good that's happened this past week. Oh, man, it's tough these days, right? To find something, especially in the places where we operate, which is, you know, basically what's happening in the world writ large. I think, you know, if there is one good thing that's happening and it continues to happen, it's that more people are engaging in these conversations around what we want schools to become in the future. And I think I've just seen even this week an uptick in the number of people who are saying, you know, we have to have these conversations now. We can't wait any longer. And it's not everybody, obviously, but I think that's a good sign. I think the urgency of this moment is coming through finally and that, you know, the challenges are so existential right now to schools that we're finally starting to go, yeah, let's roll up our sleeves and do this. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I was just reading something the other day where someone had changed their mindset where they said, you know, I used to think about before COVID, early COVID, and now we're at late COVID. He said, but the problem is, is that what I thought of as early COVID, it keeps moving, right? Like last summer in 2020, I used to think that, and now I think of that as early COVID, but we thought it was going on forever at that point. We have to start thinking differently about what the world looks like going forward because this is such a it is still such a pivotal moment in our society and in our education. I think they're very closely related. 100%. Yes. Agreed. You got to go first, Sean. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, my win this week actually kind of comes from last week's win. So we had been talking about some interactions we had had on Hacker News around the role of teachers in learning along with your students and always remembering what it feels like to be a beginner at something and learn something that is really hard to understand that you have to struggle through because it helps build that empathy with our students and that connection with them and helps us be better teachers. And so over the last week, I've been diving really deep, even deeper into a lot of new coursework around a technical topic. And I feel like I'm drinking from the fire hose because there's so much information. It's a lot of new concepts connected to things that I sort of know or that I've known from a long time ago. And I think the win here is kind of the fail at the same time. It's a lot of struggle and I really don't understand what's going on yet. And I'm working through it and I'm trying to figure it out and I can feel that reminder of what it's like to be learning something that is new and foreign and going out and outside of your comfort zone 
And it's been a really good experience. And I've been enjoying the struggle as I go through this week. I love that you keep reminding us of that power of yet because I'm in the same boat with you with my win. I get to learn a lot of things this week. I'm trying to teach a new course to the eighth graders. I've always been teaching the littles. And now Sean's given me the opportunity to teach the eighth graders. And I've taught these kids sixth and seventh grade. And, you know, we've always talked about the power of learning and that we're teaching them to learn, not just to memorize. And these kids know everything that I knew. And now I have to teach them something new. And it's been a really fun experience, which can I just go into my fail from that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I started the lesson yesterday with these eighth graders, I was trying to refresh with dictionaries and tuples. And sorry, Will, this is like a Python talk for a second. And I wanted to work with the library with requests and access a website because I think the eighth graders are going to be hooked with the fact that they can access a website and code it. And I got in today because I was going to do it the second time. And I was like, I better just check to see if this code works at school. And I got onto the podcast with Sean this morning. I'm like, it doesn't work. <laughs> I can't get to the website. What's going on? He's like, you're going to have to explain what it means. And I'm like, everything. And I sounded like a sixth grader. So I'm a little bit freaked because I have to teach this class an hour, but whatever. You know, they know that failure is an opportunity and an option in our class and that I'm okay with failing in front of them because if we're not vulnerable, then how can we expect them to be vulnerable? So I'm just going to hide my tears and say, we can do this. We'll figure it out. So that's where I'm at right now, a positive <laughs> and a, a failure. So Will, any particularly notable fails this week? Well, aside from getting COVID a second time, but you know, <laughs> I think everybody's failing in that regard right now. So yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's like, I'm trying to stay positive. So let's not talk about the failures because there's lots of things that are failing right now. We could spend the rest of the time talking about that, but let's just move on to the, good stuff, right? <laughs> that sounds, on to the thought work. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds, sounds good. good. Okay. So let's dig a little bit deeper. So, well, you're one of the co-founders of the Big Questions Institute. And one of the key concepts that the Big Institute question fosters, one of the missions is using this idea of fearless inquiry, right? To really ask the important questions, to be curious about the world around us, whether that's the world of our school or the world of our world or beyond, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea of fearless inquiry and where it came from in terms of your understanding of it in context? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Homa and I got together with this work a couple of years ago, and apologies for all the dinging going on. But, you know, and Homa's background really is in more global competence, Jedi work, a lot about justice and race and all of that stuff. And I do come from a technology background, either, even though more of my work right now is about change work in schools. So we just kind of both felt like we were asking a lot of <laughs> big questions about right. the world and that we didn't have any answers, right? So we're not the Big Answers Institute, right? We want to make that really clear. And that's because the answers are going to be found locally, we think, and they're going to be found only through a lot of serious inquiry. And, you know, we use inquiry-based learning in schools all the time. And so the question becomes, how fearless can we become about the questions that we ask? There are some really easy questions to ask or easier questions to ask. The ones that really matter right now are at the core of our work. So we put out that book, Nine Big Questions That Schools Must Answer Before Going Back to Normal, right? And we're actually going to come out in a few weeks with a revised edition where it's 11 <laughs> different <laughs> questions because we've found a couple more that we think are really important. 
But, you know, it gets kind of fearless. It shouldn't be, but you have to be a little bit fearless to go in and say, what's sacred in our school right now? What are the things that we don't want to lose? What are the things that are most important to us? It's now you have to be a little bit fearless now to answer truthfully a question like, are we okay? You know, and where is power right now? Who holds power in schools right now? And so these are questions that we think aren't asked at least out loud a lot and aren't discussed throughout school communities very much, but that all are at the core of who we are as individuals and who we are as schools. And unless we go there, unless we tell some truths about, you know, what we're doing right now, what our practice is, maybe the dissonance between what we do in schools and how learning actually happens in human beings, unless we go there, then it's going to be really difficult to figure out who we want to become and, you know, who we might become in this moment. Because I think like, and, you know, I said at the beginning, I think more and more people are coming to the conclusion that what we have right now, as much as we might love it in a lot of ways, it's not preparing kids for the world that they're moving into right now. And to be honest, and this is like a really fearless truth, schools weren't built for this moment. Schools weren't built for a time when we have so much access, growing access, not everybody, but we are continuing to grow more access to information and knowledge and teachers and technologies and do things on our own in ways that we couldn't do even 10 years ago. So you know, that's what it means to be fearless now. Let's roll up our sleeves and really get to the core of our work. And let's be honest about what we find there. I really, we saw you in Monterey. We spoke at Monterey and you were keynoting in Monterey virtual conference. Mm -hmm. And the questions resonated when we got the nine questions booklet. It really resonated with me. But it wasn't until I started really digging in and looking at it through the lens of a computer science teacher of thinking about, are we connected? You know, this is an honest and brutal question that I think a lot of CS teachers need to ask themselves after speaking with Richard Culotta in the Digital for Good. Are we really connected? Are we really showing the kids the power that comes from technology? Are we showing them how to be connected in a global population and how can we do social good? I guess what I want to get at is like, how do you foresee schools and individual teachers looking for answers or looking for answers to these great questions? Well, let me just go a little bit sideways on that, right? And I think one of the things about that connection question is, you know, it's kind of unstated there, but are we connected as learners, right? Not just socially. I think that, you know, there's a lot of social connection that we have. What I've found really powerful about the last couple of years, we had, Home and I have both been doing this, but I, I actually had the opportunity to facilitate an ongoing weekly Thursday morning at 8 a.m. call for international school heads from around the world that started in March of 2020. And every Thursday, almost without fail, we've taken a couple breaks, but I think tomorrow's call is going to be number 88 or something in that sequence, right? And what I really want people, even who are in those conversations, to see is that for many of them, and they'll say this too, it was probably some of the most powerful learning they have ever done trying to get through the last 18 months, now almost you know two years, and that there was no textbook, there was no curriculum, there were no, you know, there was no workshop, <laughs> you know, you literally had to learn your way through this moment and you did it because you were connected. You did it because you were connected, not only in this community of people who are coming together every Thursday morning, you know, whether it was 100 or 50 or however many of them were doing it, 
but you did it because you then stayed connected with people and you shared ideas. You were transparent about the learning that you were doing so other people could steal, literally. And people were saying, take this, you know, try this. Let me know what happens, which is the way we want learning to look in our classrooms, right? But, you know, when I go back and I ask those folks who say, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I say, well, how does that map to what your kids are doing in your schools? And then almost to a person they go, yeah, doesn't look anything like it, right? So the technology that schools used over the last two years changed, and I'll use air quotes there because I'm not sure how much it actually did change, but changed the delivery mechanism and changed the way we might think about, you know, connection. But I'm not sure how many more conditions for powerful learning it created. You know, I'm not sure how many schools really use the technologies at their fingertips you know, to create more relevance, to create more agency, to create, you know, more real world problem solving, and instead simply just kind of used it as a delivery mechanism. So I think that's one of the, again, one of the audits or questions, reflections that people have to do. And so, you know, get a long-winded way to get to your original question, but I think that if we can make some space to even ask questions, like I said, like what's sacred, what's really important to us right now? Or, you know, how do we define learning? You know, some schools that we've seen and unsolicited have said to us, you know, we're taking one of these a month. We're just finding some time, even if it's half an hour, or we're just doing a jam board. We're just posting it on a jam board and people are just like posting their answers up there. And then we're having some conversations about it. Or one school that I actually worked with took a whole like professional learning day and <laughs> they made it, they went from like the macro to the micro. They said, what is sacred about algebra two? <laughs> they, you know, they had a conversation about that, which is great, right? So I don't know. I think, you know, as long as people can just engage at some level with these, and obviously we want it to be even more formal and a little bit more at depth, and then connect those people together, you know, those schools together that are working around that. I think that a lot of people are telling us those conversations are moving them forward in some pretty substantive ways, which is great. I don't know if that answered your question, Kelly. But anyway. <laughs> it, it did. I was going to pause and let Sean, otherwise I'll just monopolize this whole episode because I have so many questions <laughs> to ask you. Sean, if well, you want to go. You know, it's interesting. It's a little bit of a pop culture reference, but my kids have been really into the original Ghostbusters movie lately, right? I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old and they have really gotten into Ghostbusters and they wanted to see the new movie. And I said, you know what, before we do that, because you're six and eight, I'm going to screen this. Like I'm going to watch it myself and figure out, you know, ultimately I think they need a little bit more time before it's ready. But there's this great scene with the granddaughter of Egon, you know, the most nerdy of all the Ghostbusters. And she's inherited a lot of that. And they're walking to school and she's having this conversation with her mom and she's going to a new school. And so the mom who's not nerdy and not a scientist, that sort of thing says to her, you know, like, why are you so upset about going to school? You love learning. And she said, that's right. I love learning, but I hate education. Right. Yeah. right. And that to me is kind of that divide that we're really trying to get at with all these questions. Right. And yeah. why is it that you can love learning and hate education? And how do we close that gap between those two? Because they should not be that far apart. Right. And I think that's where the questions about connectedness and being able to connect that desire to learn with the available pathways within education. So if you want to learn here, go learn this, go learn this. Let me help you. Let me find the path for you alongside you. That stuff is not happening. And I think part of it, to your point, and my thought here, I want to dig into this a little bit more is you know, it's one thing to ask the question without fear, right? That's 
often a very difficult hurdle to get over. But then the second part is the fearless experimentation and taking the risks to be able to say, we're going to try these things. And if they don't work, it's going to be okay. Have you seen that kind of risk-taking behavior change over the last 18 to 24 months with the result of the change in delivery? I think the places that had the capacity to do it before the pandemic were more motivated to do it now, right? So, but I don't think that a lot of schools still have the capacity, have a, a certain level of kind of shared language, shared understanding of the world, you know, shared mission and vision, all of that stuff. To me, that's where capacity is, right? When you all as a school community understand what it is that you're doing and trying to accomplish and that you are committed to getting there. And I'm not sure that there were many schools before the pandemic who were ready to do that. And so I don't think that that magically happened overnight during the pandemic, even though people were frantic about it. In many cases, I think it if you didn't have the capacity beforehand, you have even less capacity right now because, you know, it's just the exhaustion and the stress and the anxiety right now are at record levels, obviously. And it's hard to put into words, you know, what is happening to the profession right now. But having said that, there are, you know, lots of schools right now who are starting schools within schools, people who are starting new schools on the edges, small kind of micro schools. There's a lot of innovation happening on the edges right now that I think is taking advantage of the connection piece in the ways that we're kind of talking about it here, right? They see the connection as an affordance for learning and as a way of giving agency. You know, that's really at the heart of this. What the technology allows us to do is to pursue our bliss in any way that makes sense to us. If we are literate enough to find teachers to help us with that, to vet the information that is in front of us, to publish and to interact socially and out there in those networks, you know, and communities that are out there. So there's literacy that goes along with this. But really, you know, what the Internet is and what the technologies that surround it are primarily are opportunities to expand the agency that learners have to learn. Schools don't see it that way in many cases, right? Schools see it as a delivery mechanism, a way of making, you know, I love when I shouldn't be, you know, kind of laugh at this, but I love when people say, well, we can engage them with more technology. And I go, technology is not the engagement problem. The engagement problem is you're not letting kids pursue things that they care about. You know, you're not letting kids ask questions that are meaningful to them. That's where you have to start. Then the technology can be an amazing amplifier of that work. But you can't just say, oh, let's give them all an iPad, you know, so they can do their worksheets. That's obviously not the answer, but that's the way a lot of schools still operate. And all right, I'll give you a fail from this week. I didn't give you one before. I was on a call the other day, a coaching call. We do these mastermind groups. And one of the leaders said, you know, I just cannot believe that my teachers are photocopying PDFs to hand out to their kids, you know, and I'm just like, why can't you believe it? <laughs> you know, It's like, that's the whole thing. We haven't really shifted that much. We haven't really evolved in our understanding of what's possible now. So yeah, I think that if you had the capacity before the pandemic, if you were engaging, if you were learning community, if you were, you know, seeing the world talking about these things at the outset, you probably were able to do some really interesting things and amplify the way that learning happens for students. If you didn't have that capacity, like I said, you may even be further behind it right now. 
Yeah, I feel like a lot of our listeners have heard us say this over and over again, with all COVID happening, and it really devastating a lot of people's lives and providing a lot of stress on teachers. I think for Sean and I, we were like, COVID. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I know, I know. But it was that pivotal moment. Like I've been MYP and I'm all about inquiry and I taught design thinking and I thought I was there, you know, I thought I was there doing what I needed to do. And then COVID happened and I was like, holy crap, I'm not doing everything that I could we talk about learning and everything. And what happened was Sean and I had to do a quick look about, are we really focusing on learning during this COVID? You know, is it really, I'm going to sit on zoom for 78 minutes and talk to you and you're going to code with me and everyone's going to be on that same time. It didn't really work for everybody. Not everybody had internet connection. You know, somebody had was sick. So we really got that shock to our system and it was like this big aha. And I was really happy that a lot of schools got that. So I know that's bad, but. Let me just say really fast. I think that there's a semantic issue here too, Mm -hmm. right? Because you hear this all the time. Well, there's been learning loss or, you know, this remote learning thing isn't working. It's the wrong word. There's been schooling loss and it's remote schooling that isn't working. And to conflate the two is highly problematic. I think. And I become probably very disliked in some circles for constantly pointing out that what people are talking about is not learning. They're talking about schooling and they have to own that they're talking about schooling because, you know, there is no learning loss. (laughs) Learning didn't stop because of the pandemic. You know, we didn't go home and then kids just, you know, didn't learn anything. They learned a whole bunch of stuff. Most kids probably learned a whole bunch with or without technology. Some of it good, some of it not so great. But learning doesn't stop, right? Mm -hmm. But the schooling piece is where people are all freaked out about. But they don't want to call it that, I think, Mm -hmm. because, again, then they have to own it. Then they have to own the fact that it's their systems, their structures, their pedagogies that really have kind of broken here and haven't been very effective. But that's, again, that's fearless inquiry. What are we talking about and how are we talking about it that makes a difference here? Well, but that seems like a symptom of the education system in general, especially at its worst, right? Which is that it's not our pedagogy that's wrong, or it's not us as teachers, educators, administrators that's wrong. It's the children who aren't working hard enough, or they're lazy, or they're, you know, they're not doing what they need to do to be effective learners. And I think that this has exposed a lot of that, right? If we're willing to take that inquiry, is that... If. Like the same people that were saying, no, the kids are just not working hard enough or they're not learning are the same people who are saying distance learning isn't working either rather than examining the own I mean, distance schooling, use, right? Distance. Yeah. Well, distance. <laughs> in, case, in this case, they say distance learning. Right? No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Because then it's the learner's fault. Right? Yeah. Right. It's not the school's fault. Right. Or it's the technology's fault. Like I could do so much better if I didn't have Zoom. Whatever. Right. And I think one of the things that's interesting and, and kind of getting into this, what's next, like, I love the question about what is sacred because it's so easily confused with what is familiar or what is comfortable, right? And we're in this transition stage right now where there's this huge desire to return to whatever normal looks like. And I think that a lot of people, not just educators, but a lot of people are confusing what's comfortable and familiar and makes me feel good. Like this never happened with what's actually sacred and important when it comes to education. So as we go forward, you know, are there things that you've discovered or 
you know, common answers that you've heard to that question of what is sacred as we start to move out of this? Yeah, and we've actually asked that question. We've been doing some provincial-wide work up in Quebec and some other places around the world where we've been asking that question to hundreds of different educators, right? Teachers, leaders, whatever. And you're not going to be shocked to hear the responses are very, very similar. They talk about relationships. They talk about, you know, play. They talk about, you know, having fun. And they don't talk about assessment. Assessments are not sacred. <laughs> Curriculum is not sacred. You know, the school day is not. No one ever talks about that stuff. And I keep thinking, and this is almost heresy to say, right? But I think we make this too complicated, you know? I'm not suggesting that there isn't value in learning science and brain science and all of that stuff, but I don't think we just reflect enough on our own learning as adults and then try to think about, well, what makes it happen for us? And then how can I make those same things happen for kids? It's not rocket science. You know, it really isn't. We just have to be, and I think sometimes we make it complicated so that we, you know, maybe feel like we have more importance or whatever else in the role. And I hesitate to even say that because I don't want to in any way throw teachers under the bus or, you know, suggest that there isn't a role for adults in classrooms with kids. There absolutely is. But that role has to change now. It can't be as a delivery mechanism. You know, it just can't be to cover curriculum and to make sure the kids, you know, know it on some test. And so I think that it is about what do we really, really think matters around learning? And it is relationships. It is relevance. It is having fun at it, even if it's hard fun. You know, that's what you're going through right now, Kelly, right? It's hard fun, right? Even though it's failure, it's fun because you know you want to get to someplace that you care about, that matters for you. So yeah, people don't disagree as to what's the most important thing. And they don't disagree as to what doesn't really matter either. But the problem is, is that we keep doing all these things that we never bring up as being really at the core of our work. And a lot of that is just narrative. A lot of that is history. It's like you said, comfort. Yeah. So I always have like a weird question and it's processing in my mind. Sorry. But I love learning. And I know Sean loves learning. Like you said, it's that challenge. It's that for me, it's... I don't have a hobby. My hobby is learning. I take every right. course online. I mean, Barbara Oakley is my superhero, loving, you know, learning how to learn. Right. And we yep. try to pass that off to the kids. And I don't know how successful we are on percentage wise, but I do know we have a lot of kids that can see our passion for learning. Do you ever experience that? Or have you seen any good example where you've seen a teacher kind of bottle up his or her passion for learning and be able to disseminate it <laughs> magically to other students? Because like, I think that is the key to answering a lot of the questions for me. I agree. I think that kids need models and that the models should be people who are inquisitive, curious, you know, who want to create, who want to problem solve, and who talk about that, who are transparent about how they do it. You know, I think everybody loves learning. You know, I don't think there's a human that doesn't love learning. That's the most natural thing that we do. You can't hate it. You know, it's the way that you evolve, right? So it's not a question of loving it or not loving it. But it's a question, I keep coming back to this, but it's a question of the conditions that exist in whatever environment you're in that allows you to pursue learning with love, right? Or with a real passion. And again, most school environments constrain that passion. Schools, if you think of them as entities, you know, if you think that they have a heartbeat almost, right? They don't want kids to pursue their own passions because that messes things up. 
you know, it makes it more difficult to get to these outcomes that we have set for ourselves. I'm not 100% in on the whole, you know, kids are widgets type of metaphor. But I mean, still, there is a certain mechanistic environment in schools that kind of pushes kids through this process. So if you tell kids, yeah, go, you know, play guitar and learn how to play Santana or, you know, because you love it or, you know, go and create this game, you know, because you love coding and you whatever, right? That's not efficient, <laughs> you know, and it's not in the narrative. And so it's hard to do that. I think the best teachers are those, again, who can create as many conditions as possible that allow the natural learning that humans do to flourish in that particular environment. And the unfortunate reality of it is the unfortunate truth is that schools are set up to make it really, really hard to do that. You know, one of the things that was surprising to me entering the teaching profession so late in my career, and I hadn't really thought of it, you know, because I came in at, you know, close to 40, I didn't realize how much value was associated with different kinds of learning, right? That there was this quite qualitative measure assigned to, well, you can go learn how to play guitar, but then, you know, come back and learn some real stuff like math. Right? Exactly, right. Or how to proper grammar. No math involved in guitar, by the way. Right. Just, just for the record, right? So yeah, none at all, right? <laughs> but that's the thing is that there's this like association of, you know, there's good learning and bad learning, right? And maybe, you know, there's some truth to that. But within the space of education, we've got these like hierarchies that we've created this like even if it's not explicitly stated, it's the subconscious that there's some learning that's more important than others. And that to me, feels like the kids who get unheard, right? That question of who's unheard, it's the kids who are learning all the stuff that's considered not valuable, right? Or not real learning and are really good at it. But every time they say, I just learned some guitar or I just learned how to, you know, organize an esports league or something like that, there's someone out there who says, well, that's great, but how did you do on the algebra exam, right? Right. right. Because again, creating an esports league has nothing to do with reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, relationship building, relationships, persuasion. You know, yeah, right. No, uh -uh, because you know, there's probably not a textbook out there on how to do it yet. So, or a curriculum on how to do it that we can then get everybody through that. You know, and I mean, sometimes I worry that I sound too cynical about all this, but I think, look, we're in crisis right now. We're in absolute crisis. I don't think there's ever been a, a more serious moment for education in the history of our country, at least. I can't imagine. We are on the edge and a lot of things are breaking. And unless we can get outside of, again, these kinds of more comfortable narratives about what's happened in the past, we're not gonna be able to move into the future in ways that are gonna prepare our children for what's to come. And, you know, we gotta be honest about it. You know, that's another fearless thing, right? It's not a really great, you know, future that we're looking at right now. They're going to have a whole bunch of challenges that they're going to have to either solve or deal with. And, you know, why we're teaching them so much of what's in the curriculum just in case they may need it someday, because that's the way we started out doing it 100 years ago. It just makes no sense anymore. I think that's the key, though. I think that's one of the hardest things for school is that honesty. Because gosh forbid, if we said, hey, listen, We've decided that the curriculum we've been teaching for 65 years or 85 years is really not right. Then how does that make us look like, you know, what does that say as an institution? Who are we? And I think that to me hits it on the head. It's that brutal honesty of saying, 
okay, yeah, I've been teaching math for whatever amount of years, but yeah. oh, it's not working. <laughs> Hello. And you're right. If There's a book called The Human Side of School Change by Robert Evans that is an amazing book written 25 years ago. But at the core of that book, it is that when you ask teachers especially to change or you implement change in schools, really what you're doing is you're asking teachers to change their own value proposition, to change you know, who they see themselves as. And that's where it gets really, really hard. You know, it's hard for all of us when we consider being or becoming something that we currently aren't. You know, it's scary. But that's what we're going to have to do right now. As educators, we're going to have to become something different. It's not going to happen overnight. But as we kind of change this trajectory of schools, and that's another thing that we're kind of saying to people, you know, no one expects you to change your school overnight or in a year or maybe even five years. But you can change the trajectory of your school right now. You can start thinking very differently about where you want to be in 10 or 20 years, even though it's excruciatingly difficult to get there. And that really is about who do you want to become? Who do we want to become? And then if we can figure that out, then we can help each other get there. You know, then we can hold each other up, you know, and we can catch each other and we can nourish each other and support and, you know, encourage and all of that. But if you don't have some sense of where, you know, where you want to get to, that's built on, again, some really deep conversations about, you know, who we are right now, it's really hard to do it. There's also something to be said here too. And this is, I think, the opportunity, the positive way to look at this is that there are two things going on right now that should make this the right time to have that conversation, the right time to have that moment. Right now, teachers are in more demand than ever, right? Like we need teachers anywhere. So a teacher that's afraid that they're going to lose their job or lose their position or not be able to take that risk of making the change or asking the tough questions, you know, there's going to be some blowback, right? Like it's going to happen that you're going to have somebody who doesn't agree with it. But you're probably best positioned as an individual right now to be a teacher that's asking those hard questions and looking at what can I do to change the trajectory of my school, right? Because there's opportunities everywhere, right? The second thing is for schools and for organizations, whether it's an individual school or a school district, like you said, we're right on the edge right now, right? And you can look at that in one of two ways. Like one, we're going to fall over the edge and everything's going to blow up and it's going to be horrible, right? Or you can look at it and say, now's the perfect time to make that change. Because one, we are on the verge of collapse as a education and, you know, under these conditions. So like if we take these risks, there's only upside, there's only opportunities to improve, there's only places to go that take us further along that trajectory. Because if we don't, there's this price of inaction. So we might as well make the change now while there's the opportunity, while everything is so chaotic and messy, let's make the change now and emerge out of it better and stronger than we were when we started. Yeah. And, you know, thanks for the reminder, Sean. And I really, as you were saying, you're, I was going, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, what are they going to do? Fire you? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> then what are they going to do? Right. That's a little bit glib. Right. But I'm reminded of a conversation I had probably, I don't know, must have been six, seven years ago now with a superintendent in Missouri who was in a city school district that had some pretty, you know, high performing schools and yet then had some schools that were just like, you know, terrible. And he basically said, he was telling the story how we went to one of these really terrible schools. And he said, we're just blowing it up. We're just doing everything differently. 
you know, and they did. They just changed the whole thing. And there was no blowback from anybody because it was terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you go to a high performing traditional school and you say, oh, you know what? We're not going to do grades anymore. Or you know what? We're not going to do this anymore. Parents will be like, ah! but in this school, they were like, whatever, <laughs> you know, right. try whatever you want, because this is definitely not working for my kids. And I think you're right. Maybe we're kind of at that point right now where it's just gotten to the point where it's like so dire and so just difficult that we can say, well, what do we have to lose here? You know, it can't get much worse. And again, many parents will tell you, no, don't change the recipe here because it's working for my child. And those are mostly privileged, you know, schools that whose only goal is to get kids into high, you know, high performing universities and colleges. But that's not the most of schools in this country and in the world, right? There are a lot more schools that could probably look at it and just go, screw it. Let's just change it, you know, because this is a moment. So yeah, thanks for the reminder. That is a good <laughs> one. So don't get mad at me, Sean. Sorry. I oh. have a person here, our counselor, she got hooked to you. We introduced you as well to the, at the Monterey conference and she watched you and she's like, oh my God, he's our new counseling hero. Oh, and geez. she, and she <laughs> said, much pressure. I don't know, do don't tell me that. <laughs> I know, but she asked this question or asked these questions for you. So this is not on the script, sorry, but she wants to know or love to hear his updated thoughts on how pandemic is impacting kids. What new opportunities is it bringing? And do you have any book or recommendations about these parents raising teens through this time or give her some help as a counselor? Because she's the one that's getting the concerns from the kids with anxiety and stress and loneliness and fatigue. And it's a big question. I'm really sorry. Thanks for the softball. You know, I really appreciate that. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> Homa. <laughs> yeah, let me call Homa. <laughs> So there's no question that the mental health, the state of mental health for almost everyone, but especially for kids right now is really dire. They're hurting in lots of different ways that are obvious and then in lots of ways that they're just kind of keeping inside and not really sure how to deal with. I think that one thing that's been interesting, I posted actually yesterday on LinkedIn, a post that said, you know, what are you going to stop doing? Right? Because if there's ever been a moment where less is more, it's right now. So what are you not going to do anymore? And actually, I talked a little bit about a coaching call that we were on where people struggled with even answering that question. Well, I don't know. You know, they were all about, well, we're going to give more support. We're going to build in more counseling. We're going to build in advisory. We're going to do, you know, we're going to do all this stuff. And I said, yeah, that's great. But what are you going to stop doing? And I still think that that's something that we have to really ask ourselves right now as schools. What can we take off the table? What really isn't that important right now? For the sake of the mental health, and spiritual, physical, you know, wellness of our children and teachers. What do we stop doing? I'm not sure that there are any, you know, great resources that I've come across that kind of speak to that. And, you know, I feel the pressure from, you know, the, <laughs> the question and the way you phrased it. But yeah, I mean, I do think that adding advisory, if you don't have that, is really important. Making time for that to let just kids get together, even if it's 30 minutes a week and just talk to one another and just be with one another and be able to just talk about what's happening in their lives. Teachers, same way, right? So those are important things. I'll save you because I have your LinkedIn because I wanted to share that because I read this yesterday and I was like, oh my God. And the last paragraph I think hit home and I'll, I'll forward this too to her. Okay. But it says, because when people are in crisis, when our teachers and our students are totally under it, there's likely not a lot of great learning happening in the first place. And I was like, wow. 
<laughs> so it's like right now, certainly choosing less really is more. And you, you, that's what you posted on the LinkedIn that you were referring to. So we'll put a link on our show notes because I thought that was really powerful. That's if we're all in this crisis, if we're all feeling stressed, we have teachers that are wanting to move to ed tech startups and ed tech sales. And I keep thinking right. to myself, if every teacher moves to ed tech sales and ed tech startups, who's teaching the kids and who are you selling to? Right. We can't all just leave education because no. it's hard, but we do need to reflect on how to make it easier or better, not necessarily easier. And what's really more important to us as educators, learning loss or life loss? And I don't mean life as in death, but I mean life as in the loss that comes when you're depressed and anxious and stressed and all of that stuff. And if you're choosing learning loss over that other thing, you totally don't get the equation there. You know, you just totally don't get the calculus. And so, yeah, I think, you know, we have to, maybe we should start talking more about life loss rather than learning loss. And maybe we, we kind of center it that way. Maybe that's my next LinkedIn post. Who knows? <laughs> we'll look forward to it. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot, but she no, begged, no, no, she begged me. <laughs> and I know we're getting towards the end of our conversation here. So I think, you know, maybe we can just wrap up by sharing some things we've been reading or learning ourselves lately that might be useful to the audience. So any books you've been reading, any new YouTube channels, anything you've discovered that is enriching your learning experience? Well, if you don't mind, I'll plug. We just put out a new free download call that's titled The 10 Books Educators Must Read in 2020. If you go to bigquestions.institute and you look up at the top line, you see free stuff. There's a link that you can get to that. I think that the book that has been most on my mind the last few months is a book by Margaret Wheatley titled Who Do We Choose to Be? And it's a book written not for educators specifically, but for leadership. And I think that she manages to describe this moment in some very accurate and unsettling detail that then forces you to think about, okay, so what do I do? Who do I want to be here now? What do I want to do? And one of the things that she talks about is that leaders now need to be able to create what she calls islands of sanity, which I love that metaphor. We're doing some work around helping schools and helping school leaders like figure out what that means for them. But it is about doing less in a lot of ways, you know, and it is about getting to what's sacred in a lot of ways. But that book has really had a huge impact on the way I'm thinking about this moment. Very, very cool. I'm Kel at a loss for a question. Go ahead, Sean. <laughs> Kel uh, Kelly, do you have any books to share on your side? Anything you've been reading lately? I don't have any books besides the one I shared last week, but, and I guess if you're stressed and lonely and sad, I have a new robot that I'm ordering. <laughs> <laughs> He's called Emo, E-M-O. He's the coolest AI desktop pet with personality and ideas. And he's the vector with the skateboard. And he's got multiple sensors, cutting edge techs. He's a cool desktop friend. So all those teachers, if you can find somebody or a parent or get a grant to get this guy, I think it's coming out, but he's a loyal companion. So if you are at home and you have to teach from home, maybe you can get yourself an email. I don't know. I think we could always turn to a bot. They do have those seals that are really cuddly for the elderly. So that is one of my finds this week. Nice. Well, my book's a, a little bit lighter on education and pedagogy, but I read a book called The Greatest Beer Run Ever over the last <laughs> week. And just this amazing story. It's a nonfiction story, although I'm sure there's some embellishment going on, but it's the story of a guy at the peak of the Vietnam War who's a civilian 
who snuck into Vietnam to go bring the guys from his neighborhood a beer from home. And I just really enjoyed the story. And I admire the kind of daring of doing this, right? The idea that like, why not? Like, it's a wild idea. Let's go see if we can do it. And just the kind of sense of adventure and, but done out of a sense of kindness and love and respect for the people in his neighborhood that were going through it. And I just really enjoyed the story. So from a, not necessarily a teaching perspective, but just from a enjoyable adventure, it was a great book. And I think they're making a movie out of it at some point, but the book is quite entertaining. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Probably not any learning that happened in that story, either. you know, they, they just, you know. It was, <laughs> well, you know, what was phenomenal was, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but he ended up spending considerably more time there than he originally expected, right? He thought it was like, I'm going to get in for a few days and get out again and things happened. And he ended up learning a lot about the culture of Vietnam, the history of Vietnam, people that he talked to. So even in the middle of this wild adventure, there's definitely learning going on. So to your point, learning yeah. never really stops, right? Yeah. Never does. Or you never know where you're going to learn. Yep. Things from. Hey, with permission, I'm adding a new quote to our wall. I really want to just emphasize this quote because it really resonates with me is, are you in an environment that allows you to pursue learning with love? So thank you for that one. I'm definitely adding that to the many quotes that we already have written on our wall. And I just want to remind students that if you're not comfortable learning here, tell me what I need or tell me what we can do in order to make this place a place where you can learn with love or pursue learning with love. So thank you. Thank you. So, Will, thank you so much for joining us this week. We really enjoyed speaking with you. Hopefully we can do this again soon. We will, of course, keep following all of the amazing things that you're doing and keep thinking about the questions that you've posed and come up with questions of our own. But we just want to say thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show and it's given us a lot to think about and consider as well. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks very much and sincere best wishes on your work moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly, signing off. Mm -hmm.